Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. I invite you this morning as we turn to God's Word to open to John chapter 12. I'll remind you as you're turning there, my plan is to turn after Easter to look at the Gospel of Mark and work through it in detail. But today and next week, I want to look at the events of Palm Sunday and Easter from the Gospel of John. Now today, Palm Sunday, we remember that on the Sunday before Passover, Jesus publicly entered into Jerusalem riding on a donkey to the praise of the crowds who hailed him as a king of Israel. But John places this event, this triumphal entry, right next to an important conversation in which Jesus clarifies his identity and his mission. I've tried to capture these two themes which perhaps seem to run a bit against each other and the music we've sung start all glory laud and honor praising the name of Jesus and yet then we've sung about Jesus sacrifice with voices that call out in scoffing and mocking how do these two fit together well we'll find out in John chapter 12 we'll begin reading in verse 12 read down through verse 26 join me as we read God's word The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered what these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. The Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, The world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus, and Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. God, how we thank you for your word. We pray that you would use your word this morning to confront our hearts, to summon our hearts, and to give us a true understanding of Jesus Christ. 
unto salvation. We pray it in his name. Amen. There seems to be something in human nature that's very interested and attracted to fame. Famous people stir up a certain amount of excitement. I think I've mentioned before at some point my own moment of sitting next to fame. It was two weeks into my freshman year of college at Hillsdale College. I was sitting at English class. It was an 8 a.m. class, so you're always a little bleary-eyed at that stage. But a college official and a woman dressed in Middle Eastern garb sat down in the desks next to me. I had no idea who the woman was, but she was introduced to me shortly as Benazir Bhutto, two-time prime minister of Pakistan, the first female prime minister in a Muslim-majority country in history and a significant political partner of the United States in that region of the world. Of course, as soon as I found out who she was, I was not only interested and excited, but I felt a distinct sense of pride that I was sitting next to Benazir Bhutto. And so that sort of pride, that sort of interest in fame, I think, that also led the Lancaster newspaper a couple of weeks back to announce the very significant fact that Justin Bieber had breakfast in Lancaster County, the city star diner in Mannheim. And of course, if that doesn't make every Lancastrian proud, I don't know what would. Well, here we are in John chapter 12, and there is intense interest in Jesus. Crowds come to see him. A few bold visiting Greeks try to get an interview with him. His fame seems to be at an all-time high. But the point of this morning's passage is that Jesus' glory does not come through this public acclaim, but through death. And we'll see this point, Jesus' glory not coming through public acclaim, but through death, as we'll see the interest in Jesus, the assumptions about Jesus, the truth about Jesus, and then the call of Jesus. So let's begin with the interest in Jesus. And we see it right away in our text, right there, verse 12, a large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. Now by this point, Jesus' public ministry had been going on for three years, and So his reputation for miracles and casting out demons, for authoritative teaching, for announcing the kingdom of God had raised expectations and gathered increasing interest. In the chapter right before this, John chapter 11, Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, calling him from the tomb after he had been there for four full days. We're told in verse 18 that word of this miracle was the primary reason for the rush or the interest to meet Jesus on the road. Now, we don't know exactly how large this crowd was, but the Jewish historian Josephus notes that typically around this time, two to three million people traveled to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And so, this would have included Jews from all around Israel, Jews scattered among the nations, Gentiles who feared God, all who were there in Jerusalem at the time. And I would guess that certainly not all of them were part of the crowd here. We probably should not have anything uh, in mind rivaling the crowd in Philly to celebrate the Super Bowl win a few years ago, but this was no small crowd. This was not just a few people gathered on the curb. In fact, the crowd was so significant that it draws comment from the Pharisees declaring the whole world has gone after him. 
Of course, it seems that the world did have interest in Jesus because verse 20 tells us that some Greeks, that is, non-Jews from the Greek-speaking world, approached Philip and said, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. It's not just the locals from Israel. It is those from outside Israel now who have heard of this Jesus and have interest in meeting him. We don't know anything about these Greeks. We don't know why it was to Philip that they came, although there's speculation that Philip's name is a Greek name, so perhaps they felt he would be the most approachable one to come to. We don't even know for sure if Jesus granted their request or not. But what we do know is that the Pharisees' statement was correct. Jesus' reputation had raised the world's interest. Perhaps we might ask, why? What was it about Jesus that raised the world's interest? And certainly, certainly raising people from the dead is a part of that. Someone hadn't come and been raising people from the dead since the days of Elijah and Elisha. But it wasn't just that. Like the household objects in Beauty and the Beast who sing, there's something there that wasn't there before. I think just interacting with Jesus made people say, there's something here we haven't seen before. Think about what we've heard in the Gospel of John. John chapter 1, Jesus comes to Philip the first time and says, come, follow me. Now, if someone just comes up to you and says, follow me, we don't typically respond and follow them. But Philip did. He followed Jesus. And two verses with no miracles later, Philip goes to Nathanael and says, we found the Messiah. And Nathanael has his doubts, but upon meeting Jesus, he almost immediately declares, you are the Son of God. Nicodemus saw and heard enough that in John chapter 3, he came at night and said, you have to be from God. John chapter 4, the woman at the well had a chat with Jesus while the disciples were on their lunch break, and she goes back to the city, and what does she say? Come and see, I think I found the Messiah. So there's something about Jesus that made children want to gather in his lap, rich and poor come to him, Jews and Gentile have an interest in him. And perhaps no one could have quite put it into words, but Scripture tells us what that something was. The words, the power, the miracles, the intimate knowledge of and compassion for his people, all point to the fact that Jesus is none other than the image of the invisible God. Jesus is God himself come to us. When you think back to the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 33, Moses asked God, show me your glory. And God said, I will declare my character to you, but you cannot see me face to face lest you die. But now, the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, sits in front of them in the person of the Son, humble and gentle yet in all his power and in all his steadfast love, he invites them to come and to be with him face to face. This is the Son of God. No wonder people wanted to see Jesus. No wonder we continue week by week to come with the same desire to see Jesus in the pages of Scripture and to worship his name together. No wonder there was such intense interest in Jesus. But by this point, Jesus' words and deeds have led people to make certain assumptions about him, and that's what we want to see in our text next. 
The primary conclusion the crowds seem to have come to is that Jesus is the promised Messiah. They greet Jesus by waving palm branches, and palm branches by this point have become something of a national symbol, particularly capturing the hope for the renewal of Israel. They were waved at the rededication of the temple in 164 B.C., In 141 B.C., when Simon Maccabus had driven the Syrians out of Jerusalem, he was greeted with the waving of palm branches and with music. So the crowds here greet Jesus waving palm branches, but they're more explicit in their hope because they shout, Hosanna, which means, oh, save or give salvation now. They're explicitly looking at Jesus and asking him to bring salvation And then they add a quote from Psalm 118, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. At this point in Israel's history, Psalm 118 was routinely taken to be a reference to the coming of the Messiah. Blessing is he, the Messiah, who will come in the name of the Lord. And the fact that the crowds explicitly add, even the king of Israel tells us that's what they had in mind when they quoted this verse. And of course, the crowds are correct. Jesus is the long-awaited king of Israel. He is the Messiah. And John proves that they were correct by reminding us that this very entry into Jerusalem on a donkey was predicted by Zechariah centuries before. And Jesus fulfills that prophecy as he comes into Jerusalem here. But the people did not understand these things. In fact, if you look at verse 16 of the text, it says that not even the disciples understood what was happening. It wasn't until after Jesus' death and resurrection that they began to understand the things that had happened. And the problem was that the people's right conclusions were mixed with assumptions and expectations that were not correct. So the Jewish expectations for the Messiah, who would be the son of David, the king of Israel on David's throne had come to be shaped by the military successes of David, not the suffering and rejection that David had experienced first. They expected that the Messiah would defeat the surrounding enemies and gain political freedom from Rome and reestablish the prominence of Jerusalem. But they forgot the importance first of the taking away of our sins and the reconciliation to the Lord. And so Palm Sunday brings us face to face with this sad irony that the crowds had their facts and even their conclusion correct. Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. But their added assumptions meant that they were wrong in their expectations, which is why this same crowd a few days later would be the ones shouting, crucify him. But before we're too hard on the Jewish people for mixing right facts with wrong expectations or assumptions, it's worth recognizing that we can be tempted to do the same thing, to get facts right about Jesus, but have the wrong expectations or assumptions. We can think that Jesus is a great moral teacher teaching good virtue we ought to follow, but assume that he wouldn't be the son of God who deserves our repentance and our worship. We can think that Jesus came to make our lives better here, And begin to doubt him or reject him when he doesn't come through for us like we had hoped he would in this life. 
We can get excited about Jesus' salvation by grace and assume if salvation is by grace, it doesn't really matter if we repent of sin and live in obedience as he asks. Or perhaps even to the furthest extent, we can be like the Pharisees and reject his claims in favor of what we feel is right or wrong or good or bad in light of our cultural beliefs or traditions of our day. All of these could be seeing some things correctly about Jesus, but assuming incorrectly and missing who he really is. But these wrong assumptions and ultimate rejection were no surprise to Jesus. Jesus is not caught off guard by the fact that the people did not understand what he was here to do. In fact, it was part of his plan, which is why Jesus immediately declares thirdly in our text the truth about what he has come to do. And we see this in verses 23 and 24. You know, if you reflect back on Jesus' three years of ministry so far, Jesus has gone to great lengths not to raise a public spectacle. He has given evidence of his divine power and healed people from sicknesses and then told them, don't go and tell everyone what just happened. And the reason was, as he told his mother at the wedding of Cana, my time has not yet come. But in verse 23, you see what Jesus says. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And here at the hour that has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, Jesus purposely draws attention to himself, riding publicly into Jerusalem on the donkey at the precise moment when all Israel from around Israel proper and gathered from all the nations would be there in the city to hear and to see what he was doing. Now, the disciples must have been really excited. For three years, Jesus had been saying, my hour has not yet come. And now all of a sudden, Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I can only imagine what Peter was thinking. Aha, yes, this is what we've been waiting for. Now we're going to gain the attention. Now things are really going to start happening. But what kind of glory is it that Jesus is going to receive? What kind of hour of glory is this going to be? Is Jesus' glory going to be like that of a lamp which uses the rich resources of oil around it to promote its light and shine so that all will see its brilliance? Is it going to be glory like the rival for a throne who overcomes all of his opponents and establishes himself a supreme authority? In a sense, both of those are true, but Jesus says, actually, my glory is like a corn cob getting husked and stripped of its kernels. My glory is like a grain of wheat buried in the ground so that it dies, but in its dying is able to bear much fruit. That is what my hour of glory will be like. Now the disciples were probably scratching their heads at this. What exactly does he mean by saying his glory will be like a grain of wheat that dies? This is true glory. Any one of us who's a a gardener who plants one of those knobby brown bulbs in the ground and then witnesses the glorious beauty that results in the spring or who, who plants a seed and watches the bountiful harvest that comes from it knows the glory of a seed that goes into the ground and then blooms and brings that harvest. But 
Jesus' disciples could not fully understand the truth of this analogy because they had not yet understood what Jesus was here to do. They did not yet perceive that Jesus could do many miracles. He could teach many truths. He could live the perfectly righteous life. But unless he gave himself up as the righteous one to die in our place for our sins, there could be no forgiveness of sin, no reconciliation to God, and therefore no abundant harvest. And so Jesus is drawing our attention to the singular importance of his death here. And the great paradox is that Jesus' glory will come through death because his death brings about his Father's acceptance of his sacrifice for us. His death brings his Father's vindication in the resurrection. His death takes the penalty for our sin that we deserve on himself and secures the abundant fruit of the redemption of his people. And so the assumptions about Jesus riding into town as the conquering king had the right facts. But to those facts, they needed to add the truth that the Old Testament had been pointing towards. That the Messiah's glory would come through his death as he took our trespasses on himself in order to give new life to all who would repent of sin and look to him in faith for their salvation. And so as we read this passage this morning, the question that each one of us that's here this morning needs to answer is have we seen this glory of Jesus? The glory of Jesus in his death for our sake. Have you trusted that death and responded with repentance for sin and desire to follow such a Savior in faith and obedience? That's the question for us. In fact, It's the question that Jesus turns to next because having declared the truth about his mission, the truth about the nature of his glory, Jesus ends this passage by issuing a call to his disciples. And so lastly, in verses 25 and 26, I want to look at the call of Jesus. We've seen the interest in Jesus, the assumptions about Jesus, the truth about Jesus, now the call of Jesus. And Jesus says there in verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it. Whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. To hate, of course, does not mean to dislike something. It means to hold it of such little value compared to something greater that we would gladly give it up for that greater thing. And Jesus' point is that someone who loves this life someone who values their goals, their safety, their freedom, their happiness to do what we want now, such that they are not willing to give their life completely to the Lord and whatever he calls them to, they will lose their life in the end. Whereas those who are willing to die to themselves now will find eternal life with the Lord forever. And so the key question Jesus is pressing on us is, this do we believe that life with jesus for eternity is so good and so important that we are willing to die to ourselves in this life to follow him for his sake the apostle paul certainly believes that you remember what he said in philippians 3 7 and 8 whatever gain i had i counted as loss for the sake of christ Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth 
of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That's the attitude that Jesus calls us to. It's one that makes sense. Now, if we think about the analogy, let's go back to the analogy Jesus made of planting a seed. Last week, my daughters, Annette and Tia, decided to plant some seeds inside so they could transfer the plants to our garden in another month. And they picked out seed packets, they planted them in the ground, and now they're watching the plants grow by our window. But imagine a child who was given a packet of seeds and they were so enamored with that packet of seeds that they couldn't bear the thought of losing them. And so they refused to plant the seeds in the ground. What would happen? Imagine, imagine a farmer who had the same attitude, who re- refused to plant his wheat because he wanted to hold on to the precious seeds that he had. That little child holding on to their 99-cent packet of carrot seeds, what would they lose out on? The farmer would not only sacrifice the beauty and glory of a, of a harvest and more abundant seeds than he had before, but he would come to ruin because the seeds he was desperately holding on to would eventually go bad and he would lose even what he had clung to in the moment. But isn't this how we so often respond? I was reflecting this week as I prepared for this passage how easy it was for me during the day as I was studying God's word to think how deeply I longed to give my life for Christ. And then that night, I maybe hadn't been thinking about this for a while, and I would all of a sudden find myself thinking about how concerned I was about what others were thinking of me or the job that I'd been done or, or thinking about uh, how I was getting wrapped up in, you know, could we afford a new house at some point or, or, or thinking and uh, in, in quickly dismissing opportunities I had to serve others because I wanted some time to relax after a long day. And don't we find that very tendency, even when we see God's word and, and say, yes, I long to give myself now for, for the sake of Christ, how quickly we get wrapped up in ourselves again. Theologian D.A. Carson offers us, I think, an important reminder as we think about this call. He writes, my endless and shameless focus on myself must not just be denied, it must be displaced. Displaced by a focus on Jesus Christ, who is the supreme revelation of God. See, there's a huge difference between dying and denying. We can deny ourselves the things that we want, and in denying ourselves are still very focused on ourselves and what we want and how we're not going to have them. But dying to ourselves means giving up our focus on ourself and focusing on Jesus and his glory and his call rather than ourselves. And that is the key, that Christ might be our all in all, even to life eternal. So Jesus calls us to be willing to lose our life and the opinions of others and the opportunities for ourselves in this life in order to gain it for eternity. But Jesus adds a second statement here that's of utmost importance. He adds, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. 
Jesus is saying here that if we would serve Christ, we must follow this same pattern that he has. In other words, the same pattern of a kernel of wheat dying in the ground in order to bear fruit must be the pattern of our life. If we would serve him, we must follow him. But here is the heart of Jesus' call. And the way Jesus puts it is so important because Jesus does not just stand up and say, all right, disciples, go die to yourselves. Jesus says, I've come to die. I've come to die myself for your sake. I've come to go to the cross in order to bring salvation to you into the world. So come with me. Die to yourselves and find life and bear much fruit with me. Jesus is calling us to union with himself, to follow him, to imitate him because of what he has done first for us. And it is because of Jesus walking that path first and giving himself for us that he can then say, if you would serve me, you must follow me. Come with me. So what does it look like for us to serve Jesus and follow him? We could give many answers to that question, but I think Scripture gives us at least three. At least three answers to what does it look like to die to ourselves in order to serve and follow Christ and his example. First, the New Testament repeatedly calls us to die to sin and live to righteousness. Following Jesus' example will mean dying to ourselves and our sinful nature through repentance of sin and living in obedience to his command instead. Jesus says, if you love me, you will obey what I command. We put off sin and die to sin in order to live to righteousness. But second, another way that the New Testament, I think, calls us to follow Jesus' example and serve him is by the New Testament's constant reminder that if Jesus' path was through suffering first and then to glory, then following him will mean that we also go through suffering first and then to glory. That particularly, of course, includes suffering for obeying Jesus or identifying with Jesus. It means that identifying first with Jesus above all else includes a willingness to be mocked or scorned by those around us. But I think this call to walk through suffering also includes the patient, trusting endurance of whatever difficulty God sends in our lives or allows through Satan's attacks. As 1 Peter 2.21 puts it, To this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. So first, this call means dying to sin in order to live or obedience to Christ. It also means following Jesus' path through suffering. So that as Romans says, provided that we have suffered with him, we will be glorified with him. But then thirdly, serving Christ will mean dying to ourselves by giving up our time and resources to serve one another rather than ourselves. Because do you remember what Matthew 25, 40 says? Jesus says, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, feeding the hungry, sheltering the stranger, visiting the sick, this you did for me. In other words, serving Christ's people, dying to ourselves to give ourselves to one another, is another way Jesus says that we serve him by dying to ourselves. 
Pastor Jim Boyce offered a poignant challenge on this point. He said, of course, there are Christian missionaries, there are Christian shelters, orphanages, and so forth. But I am asking whether these works really involve you and me, or whether on the whole, many of us are content to let the small minority do these works while we enjoy the comforts of our middle-class life and use our free time for ourselves? It's an incisive question. And so I think Scripture gives us these three, repent and obey, suffer after Christ's example, give our time and resources to serve God's people. That is what it means to serve and follow Jesus. But notice we conclude here, That Jesus doesn't just give us this call. He ends by reminding his disciples of the rewards of following Jesus on this path. And he says that there will be two. First, Jesus promises, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Do you hear this call? If we follow Jesus, it means we are with Jesus. And it means Jesus is with us. It's perfectly logical if you go on a job shadowing day or you shadow at a new school, you are with the person you're paired with precisely because you're following them. And that is what Jesus is calling us here. If you follow me, you will be with me where I am. The presence of the fellowship of God himself through his son by his spirit. Tremendous reward if we will follow Jesus. And as if that weren't enough, Jesus adds a second blessing. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now that, on its face, is a rather preposterous sounding statement. The high and the holy one, the God of the universe, who deserves all honor and blessing and glory and power and praise forever, would honor us? And yet that is the promise of God That if we will walk through his son's sufferings with him, if we will die to ourselves in fellowship with Jesus, we will also stand in honor with his son. This is the gracious reward that is promised by God to those who will serve Christ. And there is no shame in looking forward to or being motivated by such rich rewards promised by our heavenly father in our union with his son, Jesus Christ. So this morning, what is my hope as we end? I hope that each one of us will join these crowds in their interest in Jesus, recognizing that he is the Son of God, the King of Israel, the long-awaited Savior who invites us into his presence. And I hope that each one of us here will recognize and receive the truth about what Jesus came to do, that you and I are sinners who fall short of the glory of God. But Jesus came to give his life in death for you and for me and for the million-fold fruit that are called to be his. And I hope that we will all heed Jesus' call to follow him, to die to ourselves in order to gain eternal life, to serve him, that we might have the reward of hearing Jesus say, you will be with me where I am. And to hear his father say, honor to the one who served my son. Let's pray. Our God, how we thank you for this word that you have given us this morning that reminds us of who Jesus is, but also reminds us that his glory came through death for us. 
And so I pray that not one of us would go out this morning without this interest in Jesus, this desire to see Jesus, the very image of God himself and all his power and his character and his goodness. And I pray that not one of us would leave this morning without looking to this Savior in repentance and in faith, calling on him and his salvation offered to us because of his death in our place and resurrection to give us new life. And I pray that every one of us would go out ready and willing to die to ourselves, to follow Jesus, that we might be with him where he is and receive these rewards offered by our Father in the gospel. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.